Well, we have sung about God's Word, and now we get to hear from God's Word. And so with that said, please stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God and open your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. A very notable chapter in the Word of God. It is the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Acts 9, I will begin reading in verse 1, and I will read down to verse 22. Acts 9, 1 through 22. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, And inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed. And entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? And he would come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength, and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Glory be to God. Let's pray. 
Our Father in heaven, what we have just read is the single most dramatic conversion on the pages of Holy Scripture. And it brings tremendous joy and excitement to our hearts to hear of your saving grace of a man who was so resistant to you and to your gospel. Father, we thank you that Saul was a chosen instrument of yours, that you elected him from the foundation of the world and that at this moment in Acts 9, as he was on his way to do more destruction upon your disciples, that you reached down from heaven and revealed your son to him. And that he was dramatically and permanently changed. That he came to understand that the one whom he was persecuting was in fact the Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we also understand and thank you that you chose him not only for salvation but to bear your name before the Gentiles. And we are the fruit of that 2,000 years later. And that you chose him to bear your name before kings and before the sons of Israel. And that in his life it is a demonstration of your grace in how he suffered so much for the name of Christ. We thank you for those saints who have gone before us who have set such a tremendous example of faithfulness to you in this life, even in the midst of trial and tremendous suffering and even death. Father, we thank you that not only did you choose to save Saul, but you have chosen to save us. And though our conversion testimonies may not be as dramatic as his, it still required the same grace to save us as it did Saul. We thank you, O oh God, for your mercy, your saving mercy upon our lives. We thank you that at the appointed time that you brought us to repentance and faith, that you gave us the gifts of repentance and faith, and that for the first time we understood who you are who we are as sinners, and our great need of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess as a church family, O oh God, that our only hope is in Christ and in his work for us. And we gather today because this is the day of the week that Christ rose from the dead. This is the Lord's day. And so it is a joy for us to celebrate his conquering of our sin, of the grave, and of the devil in our behalf. We thank you that we superabound by your grace to us in Christ. Father, may you overwhelm us with joy. May you flood our hearts with humility and with a deeper desire than ever to serve you in this world, to advance the gospel, to even suffer for the gospel, to never be ashamed of the gospel. May we sing with full hearts. May we give out of gratitude for what you've given to us. And as we turn to the exposition of your word, may you give us ears to hear 
And may we worship as we listen. May Jesus Christ be praised and may may he be exalted in our midst. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, what a wonderful time it has been singing to the Lord and worship, adoring him. Thank you, Brother Hugh and Brother Huey. I think they're going to go on tour soon and make a CD or an album. Well, I invite you once again to take your Bibles, if you would, and open to Ephesians chapter 6 as we continue and conclude our study of the Christian spiritual warfare. This is part 12, and I never imagined when we began this passage that it would take 12 messages to conclude. This exceeds any other mini-series in Ephesians, and it is to my surprise, I must confess, but I trust that it has been instructive and edifying to you in our study over the last few months. This morning we are again going to see an emphasis on a call to prayerfulness in verses 19 and 20, and I want to read our text once again beginning in verse 10 down through verse 20. So follow along as God speaks to us through his word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Amen. When you ask people to pray for you, What do you ask them to pray for? When you ask people to pray for you, what do you ask them to pray for? This is a very important question because what you ask others to pray for reveals your spiritual priorities. It reveals what is most important to you. As a person. Now let's take this a step further. If you were in a position of prolonged suffering that, from the human perspective, was completely unjust and unfair and that could result in your execution, how would you want people to pray for you? 
And if you were to write a letter to your church family from prison under such dire circumstances, what would you ask them to pray for for you? What would your request be? Well, beloved, it is our immense privilege this morning to see what the Apostle Paul asked for in prayer under these kinds of circumstances. As we now come to the conclusion of our study on the Christian spiritual warfare, I want to remind you of what we have seen. And on your bulletin, you will notice that I have supplied you with a full outline that we have used over the last three-plus months. I find outlines to be extremely helpful in Bible study. I always have as a Christian, and therefore I commend this to you. As we have said many times now, there are three main parts to the text that is at hand. In verses 10 through 13, we have the first main part. We have titled it, The Believer's Warfare, wherein we are given a call to arms, a call to war. There are a couple of subpoints that we looked at, letter A, the strength for our warfare, and we noted that in this warfare we face an enemy that is so formidable that we could never be successful in our own strength. And therefore, Paul begins by exhorting us to engage in spiritual warfare with the unsurpassing, unrivaled power of Christ, which far exceeds that of the devil and his host of demons. And the way that we appropriate the power of Christ is by putting on the full armor of God. Letter B in our outline, the nature of our warfare, we learn that in this warfare we face repeated and varied attacks from the devil and his host of demons, such as being tempted to sin, such as being intimidated through fear and persecution and through myriads of attacks on the word of God. The devil has declared war against the truth, and he has an endless array of attacks on the word of God. And therefore, beloved, our objective, as defined by Paul in this spiritual warfare, is defensive in battle. We are not to go on the offensive and attack the devil with bizarre techniques in spiritual warfare, but rather we are to stand firm against his schemes, and we are to resist him in the evil day. Well, the second major part of our text is in verses 14 through 17, and we title this The Believer's Armor, wherein we are given our complete armor. And in this armory of God, as we have seen, there are six specific pieces of armor that we are to put on and take up, and they are outlined on your Outline, letter A, the belt of truth, followed by the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of gospel peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of God's word. That is the full armor of God that we are to put on and to take up. And now we come to the third major portion of this text. In verses 18 through 20, we are titling it the believer's lifeline, wherein we are given a call to prayerfulness. And again, we have a couple of subpoints, beginning with letter A, which we looked at last time, the apostolic instruction on prayer in verse 18. And we noted last time that the instruction Paul gives to us in verse 18 is more densely packed with truth about prayer than any other single verse in the Bible. There is more about prayer here in verse 18 than in any other single verse in the entire scope of Scripture. 
And as we said, what Paul teaches us on prayer in verse 18 is not disconnected from his discussion of spiritual warfare, but rather is a continuation of it. It is a continuation of it. So what we have here, beloved, is warfare prayer. And that is vital to understand. This is warfare prayer. In verse 14, Paul gives the main command that we are to stand firm in spiritual warfare. The first way that we are to stand firm is by putting on the full armor of God. And the second way that we are to stand firm is by prayer. We stand firm through and by prayer. Now, this defies all conventional warfare method because the way the Christian soldier is to stand firm is by being on his knees, by being on his or her knees on the battlefield. As we said last time, prayer is the Christian soldier's lifeline with God while on the battlefield. We can say it this way, it is our wartime walkie-talkie through which we stay in constant communication with our commanding officer, the Lord Jesus Christ, by whose strength we stand firm. And so as we live the Christian life on this field of battle, we are not only to pray, but we are to pray as Paul instructs us in verse 18. We noted that there are five fundamental principles of prayer in this one verse. Number one, we are to pray with variety in prayer. Paul says, with all prayer and petition, we are not to pray with just one kind of prayer, but with all kinds of prayer, like adoration, like confession of sin, like thanksgiving, and like supplication. Secondly, we are to pray with a certain frequency in prayer. He says, pray at all times. We are to pray consistently as a way of life. We are to be people who are marked by and characterized by prayer. Thirdly, we are to pray with the right power in prayer. In the Spirit, says Paul. We are to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, prayers that are guided by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Fourthly, we are to pray with persistence in prayer, Paul says, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition. And so we are to pray in such a way that is persistent, that remains in constant alert like a faithful soldier, not growing sleepy, not growing complacent, not growing tired and fatigued in the battle, but remaining alert and not giving up in the act of prayer. And then fifthly, we are to pray for the right objects in prayer for all the saints. For all the saints. We are to pray for all of God's people, whether they are Jews or Gentiles, whether they are slaves or free, whether they are male or female, whether they are children or parents, whether they are rich or poor, whether they are black or white, whatever social distinctions exist in our world and our culture, they do not matter in the church in terms of the objects for whom we pray. We are to pray for all the saints because all the saints are involved in the same spiritual warfare that you are involved with, and all of the saints, listen, are your fellow soldiers, and one of the ways that God has called you to support your fellow soldiers is by praying for them in the battle. God has entrusted to us, each one of us, with the stewardship of praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are our fellow soldiers. Now, all of that is my way of review. Now, Paul says, pray for all the saints. Guess who one of those saints was that they were to pray for? Paul. 
one of the saints that the Ephesians were to pray for was the Apostle Paul. That brings us to letter B, the last point in our outline in this monumental text, the apostolic request for prayer in verses 19 and 20. Look at verse 19. Look at what Paul says. And pray on my behalf. What is Paul doing here? He is asking for prayer, which in and of itself is a tremendous thing. Ephesians, when you pray for all the saints, don't forget to pray for me. Why does Paul ask for prayer? Why? Why is he asking for prayer? Because like all other saints, because like us, he was in need of prayer. He was dependent upon prayer. Beloved, there is a vital principle for the Christian life here. It is a a golden nugget of truth. Our Christian lives are in large part dependent upon the prayers of other people. Do you understand that? Do you understand that your Christian life is in large measure dependent upon the prayers of God's people in your behalf? And Paul was no exception to this principle, even though he was an apostle with a capital A. Consider this. As an apostle, Paul wrote more books of the Bible than any other individual. Thirteen letters of the New Testament. That's almost half of the New Testament. He saw the resurrected Christ, as we noted and as we read earlier in Acts chapter 9 on the Damascus Road. He received dreams and visions from God. On one occasion, he had some sort of -of out-of-body experience in which he left this world and literally went to heaven. And he was endowed with the ability to perform signs and wonders and miracles. But in a very remarkable way, the Apostle Paul was no different than us. He still had the flesh. He still had remaining sin. He had the same spiritual needs that we have. And so even though Paul had been called by God to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and that he had certain unique privileges with that calling, there was no sense of superiority in him. Like you and me, his Christian life and his Christian ministry were dependent upon the prayers of God's people. Vitally dependent. So to ask for prayer, to ask someone to pray for you, as Paul does here, is no act of pride. Somebody may resist that and say, I can't ask so-and-so to pray for me because that seems selfish, that seems proud. No. To ask others to pray for you is not an act of pride. It is an act of humility. It is to recognize that you cannot live the Christian life on your own. You can't. Listen, you need the prayers of other Christians because you need the help of God that is unleashed in your life through the prayers of God's people. God's people pray, it releases the power of God in someone's life, and therefore you are strengthened and equipped to live the Christian life. This is one reason why the church is so essential to the Christian. I cannot live the Christian life without you. I can't do it. It is impossible. 
I am completely dependent upon the church of Jesus Christ. And you are as well. So Paul asked the church to pray for him, which is remarkable in and of itself, as we have just noted. But what exactly did he ask for in prayer? Look at the text, verse 19, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. What a prayer request. When was the last time that you heard a prayer request like that? Prayer meetings all across our land are void of these kinds of prayer requests. This request reveals the spiritual priorities of Paul. It reveals what is most important to him. It reveals his treasure, especially in light of his circumstances at this very moment of writing this epistle. Now, let me remind you of Paul's circumstances as he makes this request for prayer. What are his circumstances? They're not good. He's a prisoner. In chapter 3, verse 1 of Ephesians, look back there for just a moment. Notice what Paul says about himself. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. He is a prisoner. He says the same thing in chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Paul is a prisoner of the Roman Empire. He is located at this moment in the city of Rome as he writes this letter, and thus this letter is a prison epistle. There are four prison epistles in the New Testament. In addition to Ephesians, we have Colossians, we have Philippians, and we have Philemon. Paul wrote all four of those from this first Roman imprisonment. And yet he viewed himself not as a prisoner of Rome. He doesn't say, I am a prisoner of Rome, I am a prisoner of Caesar. Rather, he says, I am a prisoner of Christ. Profound statement. It was not because of some great act of evil that Paul committed against the Roman Empire that he was a prisoner in Rome. But rather, Paul finds himself as a prisoner in Rome because of his faithful service to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is suffering the cost of being faithful. Beloved, if you are faithful to Christ, you will suffer. That's just how it is in this world. And Paul is a tremendous example of that. So Paul is a prisoner. But not only is it imperative for you to understand that Paul is a prisoner of Christ in Rome at this moment, it is imperative for you to understand exactly how he became a prisoner. And so how did Paul end up in prison in Rome in the first place? What exactly happened? Paul's imprisonment in Rome all began because he was unjustly accused by his Jewish enemies at the temple in Jerusalem in Acts 21. Do you remember the scene? Do you remember what happened? After traveling abroad around the world and going to all of these Gentile churches, many of which he started, he takes up this massive offering from the Gentile churches to bring back to the needy Jewish saints in Jerusalem. And he does that in Acts 21. So once he arrives in Jerusalem... There are so many Jews living in that city that were hostile to Paul. They hated Paul. Paul was their enemy. And there were certain Christian leaders in Jerusalem who gave Paul a word of advice. 
namely that he take four Jewish men, that they go to the temple, that they partake of ceremonial purification, and they make sacrifice. And this was an attempt to sort of reduce the hostilities of these opposing Jews against Paul. So Paul listens to their advice. He does what they tell him to do. But while he is in the temple, he is recognized by some of the Jews, and they falsely accuse him of bringing what into the temple? A Gentile, which was a serious charge. It was worthy of death. That would defile the temple. And so this is the charge. A mob quickly forms, and they attempt to beat Paul to death. They are in the act of literally beating Paul to death on the temple precinct. But in the providence of God, Paul is rescued by Roman soldiers of all people. And this is the beginning of his imprisonment. Paul was eventually moved from Jerusalem to the city of Caesarea, Because there was a plot formed by more than 40 Jews to kill Paul, they said that we will not eat until we have murdered Paul. Paul becomes aware of this plot. He informs his captors, and then they move him out of the city of Jerusalem to the city of Caesarea. He's kept a prisoner there by the Roman governor Felix for a period of two years. And you know why Paul was there that long? Because Paul would not give this Roman wicked governor bribe money. He solicited Paul wouldn't give it. So for two years, he remains a prisoner in Caesarea. Imagine two years of your life in prison. But because Paul was a Roman citizen, what he does is he appeals to Caesar. And so from Caesarea, he is then taken to Rome to stand trial before Caesar, who at this time was Roman Emperor Nero, no friend of the church. No friend of the church. Paul would eventually arrive in Rome and spend an additional two years as a prisoner of there. And during that two-year imprisonment, he would literally be chained to a soldier 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The soldiers would take turns. They would have shifts, if you will, being chained to the Apostle Paul. And so by the time Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians, he has been unjustly accused by the Jews. He has been viciously beaten by the Jews. The Jews have plotted his murder. He has been kept in prison by a wicked ruler who sought bribe money from him. And on his journey to Rome, he suffers shipwreck in the Mediterranean Sea because of a violent storm. And now I want you to consider this. If this had happened to you, if this was your life, how would you respond? How would I respond? There is a good chance that you and I would be angry and bitter. Angry with the Christian leaders in Jerusalem who advised you to go into the temple in the first place. Angry with the Jewish mob who beat you and angry with all of the Jewish opposition against you. Angry with the Roman Empire for keeping you a prisoner chained to a Roman soldier 24-7. These people had stolen four years of Paul's life. Four years! Of his life. 
And there is also a very real chance that you might be angry with God who allowed all of this to happen. And if you were to write a letter to the church in which you asked for prayer, you might very well ask for something like this. Pray for me that I may be released from my imprisonment. I would probably write that. It's been four years. Please pray for my release. Or you might write something like this. Pray for me that I may be vindicated from all of the false accusations against Paul. All of this was a web of lies. Paul's here because he has been unjustly accused, unfairly imprisoned. And so we could understand asking for the church to pray for our vindication, that things would be made right. Or we might say this, pray for me as I stand before Emperor Nero that I might be acquitted and not be executed by beheading. That was a very real possibility. Or we might say, pray for me that my suffering would end. I cannot take it any longer. I have suffered and suffered and suffered until I cannot suffer anymore. Please pray to God that it ends, even if God has to take me home to make it end. But when you read verse 19, that isn't the language of Paul at all. Because that is not in the heart of Paul. Paul doesn't pray for anything like that. Instead, with a chain attached to his wrist, on the other end of which is a Roman soldier, he writes to the Ephesians and says, And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Glory to God. There is no bitterness in Paul. There is no resentment in Paul. There is no anger in Paul, neither towards man nor towards God. Paul does not view himself as a victim of unjust and unfair circumstances. He doesn't sit back having a pity party, questioning God in all of this suffering. But rather he views his circumstances as difficult and as painful as they were as the sovereign, wise, good purpose of God for his life. This is God's will for me. And he is a man who is submitted to God. And a man who is submitted to God does not complain to God about his circumstances. Paul says, I have learned to be content in all things. And part of that contentment is being content in suffering, chained to a soldier in a four-year unjust imprisonment. So he understands that this is the purpose of God for his life. That is why he refers himself, refers to himself rather, not as the prisoner of Rome or the prisoner of Caesar, but as the prisoner of whom? Of Christ. I am a slave of Christ, and I am now a prisoner of Christ. Listen very carefully. All that he had suffered was according to the purpose of Christ for the advancement of of the gospel. All that Paul is suffering is according to the purpose of Christ for the advancement of the gospel. And so as a prisoner in Rome, 
Paul found himself in the providence of God with the unique opportunity of sharing the gospel with people that otherwise he never would have been able to evangelize. You know what God has done in Paul's life? He has given him a new mission field, a prison ministry. He has a group of people who need to hear the gospel that would never hear it had God not put Paul in this circumstance. So Paul's suffering is according to the purpose of Christ for the advancement of the gospel. And it is a glorious advancement. It is a glorious purpose of Christ to do this. And so in spite of all that Paul is suffering, as difficult as it must have been, what remains most important to Paul is the advancement of the gospel, not his freedom, not his vindication, not his own comfort, not his safety. This is made evident in his request for prayer. Again, he says, and pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me. What do I want from God? I want utterance. I want a word. I want a message. I want to be able to speak. He doesn't say that deliverance may be given to me or that vindication may be given to me or that comfort or safety may be given to me. But that utterance may be given to me. This is what weighed most heavily upon Paul's mind as he is attached to a Roman soldier in confinement. That utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. In other words, Paul says, Church, when you pray for me, pray that God will help me and enable me to say the right things when I open my mouth. In particular, pray that God will enable me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. That's what I want. I want that more than I want safety, more than I want comfort, more than I want release, more than I want vindication. To make known the mystery of the gospel. In chapter 3, Paul labors the point that as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he had been entrusted with the stewardship of of making the gospel known. And he refers there and here to the mystery of the gospel. And as we have said a number of times in our study of Ephesians, the word mystery as used in the New Testament has very little correlation with how the word mystery is used today in our modern vernacular. A mystery in the New Testament refers to something that was previously hidden, something that was previously unknown, but now has been revealed by God. In other words, the message of the gospel is divinely revealed truth. Man did not invent the gospel. Man did not even discover the gospel. Rather, the gospel is revealed by God from heaven to man on earth. And this gospel message that God had made known to Paul was to be made known by Paul. It was made known to Paul in Acts 9, and then in the rest of the book of Acts we find how God had purposed for this gospel to be made known through Paul and by Paul to the world. This is why he travels so extensively all over the world to make known the mystery of the gospel. But there was a certain significant problem that Paul was facing. 
in light of this calling, in light of this stewardship of proclaiming the gospel. And what was the problem that Paul faced? What was the barrier? Any takers? It's fear. Fear of what? The fear of man. Sound familiar? This is me. What is the biggest barrier that we face as being faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ in the world? It's not that I don't understand the gospel or know the gospel or know the Bible. It's not that I don't know lost people. It's that I'm afraid. It's the fear factor. It is the fear of man. That is why Paul says, pray for me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. The one vital element that every Christian needs when proclaiming the gospel is boldness because all of us, without exception, have some measure of the fear of man within us. Do you agree? I am ashamed to tell you how many times I have not shared the gospel in my Christian life of 21 years because of the fear of man. I'm ashamed of that. But it's true. It's true in my life. It's true in your life. It was true in Paul's life to some degree. We fear that we will suffer at the hand of man. We fear that we will be rejected. We fear the disfavor of man, the disapproval of man. We fear the frown of man. God forbid that we say something that man won't like and that maybe we won't be liked and maybe we won't be popular, maybe that we will become rejected over. We have created this idol of the acceptance and the approval of man. Many people are a slave to the smile of man. And this is what Paul is fighting against, fighting hard against it. The word boldness, note it there in verse 19. It is a beautiful word. I love this word. It means, listen to this, freedom of speech. Not in the sense, as you think about an American who has the right to speak what he wants. The idea here is speaking in such a way that is unhindered by fear. We understand that. You might find yourself in a conversation talking with somebody and there is not a freedom of speech because you are afraid to say certain things that maybe need to be said. We all can understand that. It is speaking and not withholding the truth because of the fear of man. It is to speak plainly. It is to speak with boldness, with confidence, with power, with conviction, with clarity, without apology, without hesitation. In a word, it is to speak and not be ashamed of the gospel. To not be ashamed of the gospel. There are many Christians who are ashamed of the gospel in public. They love the gospel at church. They love the gospel at home. They love it in their car, but in the world, they are ashamed. They are afraid to speak the gospel. The same word Paul uses here is used in Acts 4 to describe the apostles Peter and John when they spoke before the Sanhedrin after they had been arrested. They spoke with confidence, with boldness before the Sanhedrin, even though they could be beaten, arrested, killed. Now, there are two things that we must do in proclaiming the gospel. 
Very important. We must proclaim it clearly, and we must proclaim it boldly. You need clarity. You need boldness. Both are vital. And the only way this will happen, beloved, is with prayer. You cannot preach the gospel with clarity and with boldness without prayer. So, beloved, God has ordained that we advance the gospel in the world. How? On our knees. On our knees. There have been occasions when I knew that I was going to be speaking the gospel with somebody, and those times were tremendous times of prayer in anticipation of those conversations because I understood my helplessness to be clear and to be bold. Warfare prayer, then, is for the purpose of warfare proclamation. That's a very significant paradigm. Warfare prayer is for the purpose of warfare proclamation. Preaching the gospel is warfare proclamation. I love what John MacArthur has said at this point. He says that we need to preach the gospel clear enough that the non-elect reject it. It's profound. We need to preach the gospel clear enough that the non-elect reject it. You know what happens so oftentimes in modern evangelism? The gospel is preached so unclearly, it is so watered down, that lost people supposedly receive it and are given a false assurance of salvation only to die and hear the words said by Christ, depart from me, I never knew you. The blood of those people is on the hands of such evangelists. So think about it this way. You need to preach the gospel clear enough that the non-elect reject it. That's huge. It's not that we want people to reject it, but we do want to be so clear that they understand the gospel well enough that if they're not willing to do what the gospel calls them to, they don't superficially embrace it. If we are going to proclaim the gospel clearly... Let me remind you of what we need to say in the opening of our mouth. We must tell people about the character of God. In our postmodern times, we are heading at breakneck speed further and, way, further and further away from any rudiments of a knowledge of God and of the Bible. Do not assume that when you talk to people that they understand the nature of God. There is mass confusion even in Shreveport, Louisiana, in the middle of the Bible Belt, about God about the basics of the character of God. And so if we're going to faithfully articulate the gospel, we must begin by telling people who God is. That there is only one God, only one true and living God who is the sovereign, holy creator of the universe from whom every person owes their existence and to whom every person will give an account. He is the creator and he is the judge. People need to understand that. He's not some weak, puny little God, as many people conceive. We must also tell people about their true spiritual condition, namely that they are, fill in the blank, sinners. The S word. I've heard about people coming to speak at different churches and asking the leadership, is it okay at this church if I use the S word? Sinners or sin. Because that is so politically incorrect. 
even in the church. But if we're going to be faithful, if we're going to be clear, we have to articulate a person's true spiritual condition as a sinner, that they are not essentially good in the sight of God, but rather they are essentially evil in the sight of God. I remember talking with a man when I was working at the hospital years ago, sitting at the table. He was a nurse anesthetist, and I told him he was evil. That wasn't the first thing out of my mouth. We had a conversation going. I built up to the point. He got so angry, he stormed out of the lounge. People don't want to hear this. But if we're going to be faithful, if we're going to be clear, we must tell people about their true spiritual condition, that they, because of sin, are evil in the sight of God, that they have not just made a few mistakes here and there like all of us do, but rather they're rebels against God. Rick posted on Facebook a tremendous quote by one of my favorite preachers, Al Martin. And here's what Al Martin says. Al Martin can say things like, nobody else can. The disposition of every human heart by nature can be visibly pictured as a clenched fist raised against the living God. When you share the gospel, say, let me give you a little picture of what your heart is like. It's like somebody raising their fist in defiance against God. You defy God. You reject God. You refuse to give him thanks. You do not submit to him. You are a rebel against the God who gives you life, who gives you breath, who gives you all things. We must tell people that as sinners, they are separated from the life of God. They have no fellowship with God. They are under the wrath of God. They deserve the everlasting punishment of God in hell. But then, after we've done all the bad news, and that's a lot of bad news, but then we must tell them that God, in his great mercy, like Ephesians 2.4, but God being rich in mercy, God being great in mercy, sent his son into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save sinners from their sin and from the wrath of God through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection from the dead. And we must tell them that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. There is no other way, Acts 4.12. And we must tell them that in order for a sinner to be brought into a right relationship with God, that he or she must repent of sin. If you're not willing to turn from your sin, you cannot be saved. Because what are you saved from but your sin? You cannot have Jesus as Savior if he is not your Lord. And so we must tell people that the demands of Christ is that either you repent or you perish, and that you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. We must tell them that they need to be willing to give up everything to follow Christ, even be willing to suffer for him, even be willing to die for him. I tell my children at home in our family worship, for you to become a Christian, you must come to the point where you are willing to give up everything for Christ, even suffer for him, maybe even die for him. Those are the demands of Christ. Read Luke 14 and many other places where Christ outlines that. Now, beloved, while the gospel is the only saving message from God and it is the only hope for sinners in this fallen world, this is not a message that sinners naturally want to hear. Have you discovered that? This is hope. 
This is life that we're offering people, that we're telling them about, but they do not want to hear it. They do not like to hear it. It is easy, and people will like you if you say something like this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Let me tell you about how your life can be so wonderful. It is easy, and people will like you if you say something like this. If you want God's best for you, try Jesus. He will make you happy. He will fulfill all of your wildest dreams. That kind of message is not the gospel. Therefore, that kind of message requires no boldness. No boldness. Boldness is required, beloved, in telling people not what they want to hear, but what they do not want to hear. That is when boldness is required. In telling them what they do not want to hear, but what they need to hear and what they must believe if they are truly going to be saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so if you are going to proclaim the gospel with clarity and with boldness, holding nothing back, it will require God-wrought boldness in your soul. It requires great boldness to tell people that there is only one true and living God, that they are sinners, that there is only one way of salvation, that they must repent and believe. That requires boldness to overcome our native fears. So let me be plain. If God does not give you boldness, if God does not give me boldness, guess what the result will be? Ashamed of the gospel. I will not speak the name of Christ on my own in my flesh because of the fear of man. And this was the same of the Apostle Paul, hence his request for boldness in his request for prayer. But Paul has more to say very quickly in verse 20. Look at what he says, For which I am an ambassador in chains. Do you note the tremendous irony in that statement? I am an ambassador in chains. What is an ambassador? What is an ambassador? It is a high-ranking government official who represented a certain leader or a certain nation and was sent to other leaders or other nations in behalf of the one he represented. And they were normally treated with the utmost of respect even by their enemies. That is why they receive diplomatic immunity. They are considered to be dignitaries. They are to be protected. They are afforded a certain honor as ambassadors. In Rome, it was very common for ambassadors to come there from all over the world, but none of them were as important as this ambassador, the Apostle Paul. Here is the ambassador of all ambassadors who represents the highest ruler in the universe, Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords. And the great irony is that Paul identifies himself as an ambassador, how? In chains. Unheard of. Just unheard of. Listen to what one writer says. The notion of a prisoner functioning in such a role during this period is apparently without precedent. 
unheard of in the ancient world to put an ambassador in chains, and contradicts the status, honor, and prestige characteristic of ambassadors. Indeed, the imprisonment of an ambassador would have been regarded as a serious insult both to the sender and to the ambassador. So this is without precedent. An ambassador in chains, a high-ranking government official as a prisoner, Now, I want to give you a sense of what is happening in verse 20 and what Paul is saying to us. At this point in Paul's life, he has been brought to the earthly, the highest earthly political center in the world, the city of Rome. This is it. doesn't get any higher than this. doesn't get any more powerful than this city in the world. And in the near future, Paul is going to stand, listen carefully, before the single most powerful earthly ruler there is, the emperor of Rome. And as he stands before this man, he is to give a defense, as he has done on many occasions in the book of Acts. And as Paul anticipates that day... He asks the church to pray that God would give him boldness in proclaiming the gospel to the Roman emperor, the most powerful man in the world from an earthly perspective. He asks for this in verse 19 and repeats it in verse 20, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. There is an oughtness, as you will notice in verse 20, to Paul's ministry, as I ought to speak. He was a man under divine orders. He understood that. He was a man who was to speak the gospel with boldness and with clarity to every man, including kings, including emperors, including Nero, if God so purposes. An ambassador does not speak his own message, but the message of the one whom he represents. And that is true of Paul, and it is true of us. We are also the ambassadors of Christ. But for Paul to do this, what does he need? He needs the church to pray for him, that God would give him the necessary boldness to be a faithful ambassador of Christ and a faithful proclaimer of the gospel. Now, I want to conclude by looking at a quote at the bottom of your notes page by John Stott, who really captures the essence of this text. John Stott. What concerns Paul most, however, is not that his wrist may be unchained, but that his mouth may be opened in testimony, not that he may be set free, but that the gospel may be spread freely and without hindrance. It is for this, then, that he prays and asks the Ephesians to pray, too. Against such prayer, the principalities and powers are helpless. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this text and the wonderful truth, the glorious truth that it reveals to us. We thank you again for the Apostle Paul and the ministry that you called him to and his faithfulness to you in that endeavor. We thank you for giving him and us the necessary boldness to give the gospel with clarity as we ought to speak. Father, we ask even now that you would give us more boldness, continued boldness, to overcome the fear of man, to overcome the weakness of the flesh. We 
say with Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. We praise you and we thank you for this. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.